Hey, good morning. Well, we're going to pick it up in the book of Acts this morning. Last time we were in the book of Acts, we got to verse 11, where Jesus ascended into heaven after having risen from the dead. And as he had spent those 40 days with his disciples after the resurrection, uh, teaching, giving various evidences that he, in fact, was alive, um, now the time had come where he would rise, uh, ascend, I should say, into heaven. And uh, as he does, as he is lifted up and, and ascends into heaven, two angels are standing near the disciples whom he was with when he ascended. And they said, why do you look into heaven? You know, don't you know that uh, the same Jesus, uh, the same way Jesus ascended, he will also return. And so um, the promise of his return is, uh, is reiterated, a promise that he himself had spoken of. Uh, and uh, now the angels were reaffirming that as, uh, uh, as, as Jesus ascended. Well, we pick up right there in verse 12, where we, uh, right after where we left off. And then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, or the Mount of Olives, where, uh, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. So either they were on the Mount of Olives when he ascended, or they were near it or whatever, but they had gathered in that place. It's likely that they were right there on the Mount of Olives. I think... Uh, in part because, as the scriptures tell us, he will also return to the Mount of Olives when he sets foot on the earth. We speak often about the rapture uh, in our times together, and the rapture is where Jesus snatches away his bride and we meet him in the air. Uh, But the second coming is where he actually sets foot on the Mount of Olives. The Mount splits uh, uh, with his return and such, but it's in that same place that he ascended that he will then return to. And it's from there that the disciples now depart to go to Jerusalem. Uh, as Jesus instructed them to, until they were endued with power from on high, which we'll see happen in chapter 2. The Mount of Olives is about a Sabbath day journey from Jerusalem. In other words, uh, by by that reckoning, it would be about a half a mile to maybe two-thirds of a mile. I believe the rule was uh, a thousand double steps, uh, which essentially equals somewhere around a half to two-thirds of a mile was what was allowed and permitted on the Sabbath. Otherwise, it was considered work, and therefore you were breaking the Sabbath. And so it's very close to Jerusalem. And so as they leave the Mount of Olives, they go to Jerusalem, where they wait to be empowered from on high. Verse 13, And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James, Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. Now Judas Iscariot, who'd killed himself after betraying the Lord. Uh, but Judas, uh, the, um, uh, 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 Judas the son of James. Um, and all of these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So here they are in the upper room. Uh, we find out that when the time comes, and they are endued with power from on high, there's about 120 of them in the upper room who uh, ultimately um, begin to break forth under the power of the Holy Spirit and begin to um, speak of the glories of God in tongues and such. And we'll see that again in Acts 2. But this is the place where they have been sort of waiting and staying together. And so we have the disciples, minus, of course, Judas Iscariot. Uh, we also have uh, the various women who had also served in the ministry along, uh, along the way. And on top of that, there's also Mary, Jesus' mother, is there, who was put into John's care, the Apostle John's care, if you remember. At the end of the story, Jesus um, uh, gives, uh, essentially hands Mary, his mother, over to John to take care of her uh, in the years to come. And then there's also mention here in verse 14 of his brothers. 
Now, that's a tricky area for some, right? Um, the idea of Jesus having brothers and elsewhere where it says sisters as well. Um, there is a long history in uh, Catholicism in particular, but they're not alone. There's also other uh, various uh, um, groups throughout the ages that have, have maintained that Jesus was, or not Jesus, but that Mary, after Jesus was born, uh, remained a virgin in that state of perpetual virginity. Uh, in other words, that she and Joseph never had normal marital relations in that way, but rather, uh, as, as uh, for example, the Catholics would say, she has the tabernacle of, of God. She just remained somehow in this, this kind of um, um, pure state throughout the rest of her life. And, and so the idea of perpetual virginity in that tradition. Um, however, the scriptures really don't say that. And so if the scriptures are going to be our guide, if we're going to let God's word dictate to us exactly how things are, then we, we recognize that the scriptures really paint a very different picture of that. Um, uh, the idea that Jesus had brothers and even sisters is something that we see uh, elsewhere in scripture. Ma- uh, Mark 6, Matthew 13, um, Mark, um, uh, uh, oh gosh, was it Mark 3, I think also makes mention, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 makes mention, uh, Galatians 1, uh, 9, I think makes mention. So there's a number of places where we are told about the brothers and sisters of Christ. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, James and Jude, writers in the New Testament, are connected as brothers of, of the Lord. Now, of course, uh, Jesus was the oldest, obviously, right? I mean, uh, she was, Mary was a virgin when Jesus was conceived and, and, and uh, up in, you know, obviously gave birth to him. But, um, you know, the mention, for example, uh, in Luke, where it says Joseph did not know his wife until after Jesus was born. The idea there, of course, speaks of marital intimacy, the normal marital intimacy that you'd expect of a husband and wife. But the distinction being that this was not the case when it came to the birth of Jesus. Just again, emphasizing the fact that uh, the miraculous virgin birth of Christ. Um, now, the question should arise, uh, I think it, it should be asked, why why would it be such a bad thing that Mary and Joseph have normal marital relations after the birth of Christ? Um, as a matter of fact, many, uh, kind of a long time ago, many years ago, probably close to 20 years ago at this point, maybe 15 or 20 years ago, uh, I was invited to do a podcast uh, with a Catholic gentleman uh, who actually was Mel Gibson's like nephew or something like that, if I remember correctly. But uh, his name was Peter Gibson, and it was on a podcast called Take Two Podcast. I don't know if it still exists or not, or if you can even find it. Uh, it was a long, long time ago. But we had a discussion on this, and the idea was we were going to cover uh, six Marian-based doctrines um, that are held, views are, different views are held between Catholics and Protestants. And so we uh, had the discussion. We covered three of those topics. One of them was the perpetual virginity of, of Mary. And so, um, yeah, I asked the question in the course of our discussion together, why, is it, why would it be a bad thing if Mary had children after Jesus? Obviously, Jesus was virgin-born. But why should it be seen as an odd thing if, if Mary and Joseph had a normal marriage after Jesus' birth? Why, it's, it's why cast sort of an aspersion upon that idea? I mean, after all, there is nothing impure. The marriage bed is, is undefiled, right? The marriage bed is holy. And so... Uh, the idea that uh, you know God, of course, gave Adam and Eve this beautiful, you know, expression of physical intimacy to enjoy together and to be fruitful and multiply and all those kinds of things. And so, you know, it's it should never be seen as a bad thing. You know, uh, marital intimacy is a very good thing. And so, why why view it differently? 
And so uh, we had that discussion, and I don't, I don't even have a copy of it anymore, but if you're so inclined and you want to look for it, you probably could find it somewhere online. But, um, but anyway, the question here as it arises, uh, did Jesus have brothers and even sisters? Uh, the word Adelphoi there uh, can speak uh, of, of relationships that are not strictly speaking brothers or sisters, um, it can speak of close relatives. It can speak of brothers in sort of the, um, you know, like Philadelphia kind of way, the idea of brotherly love and that. Um, but the context usually would dictate how the term is being used. And when it's used, like here, speaking of Jesus' mother and his brothers, you know, the plain reading of the text would not really lead you to believe that it didn't mean his actual brothers unless you were already predisposed to think it didn't. Uh, and so that tends to be the case when you see these kinds of references anywhere you see them sprinkled throughout the New Testament, the Gospels and such. So it shouldn't be a hang-up for us. Um, uh, of course, the virgin birth of Christ is an essential Christian doctrine. If Jesus was not, in fact, divine and divinely, uh, ultimately, incar- uh, uh, from in, his, in maintaining his divinity incarnate, this is through the virgin birth. We understand these things to be biblical uh, and, and, and foundational truths of the Christian faith. But the idea that there were no natural half, they'd have to be obviously half-brothers. Uh, Joseph was not Jesus' father, per se. Um, God was, right? And obviously, the incarnation was through the work of God. And so, but, um, but the idea of having brothers and sisters afterwards should not really be a hang-up for us. I don't mean to spend a lot of time on this, but, um, but it is kind of a hang-up for a lot of folks. And so I would just say that if it is kind of a touchy thing for you... Um, I would encourage you to ask yourself why it is. Is it because the scriptures have led you to think differently on this and that there's some moral reason for this? Uh, or is it because of the traditions that we sort of were brought up in? It's the tradition I was brought up in. Uh, I grew up Catholic and I came to Christ when I was 21, uh, coming up on 22. And um, and so these these ideas were very ingrained in me growing up. And so, but you know, after a study of the scripture, I realized that, you know, that's that's not really necessarily a biblical truth. Uh, it's more rooted just in tradition. And so, anyway, don't be too hung up on that, um, but uh, just by way of explanation. So, picking it up in verse 15. Now, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, and the company of persons was all, and that, by the way, is the idea of brothers. Again, it's, it's a term that uh, is used more loosely in that context, right? Now, in the company of the persons was in all about 120, 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. He may very well be referring to Psalm 41, verse 9, where it spoke about the one who ate bread with me is lifted up his heel against me. The same passage that Jesus, uh, or that John, I think, recalls when Jesus essentially points out Judas as the betrayer in John 13. Um, So back in verse 17, "'For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry.'" Now this man acquired a field, Judas that is, with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, uh, uh, in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. It's a gross description of, of Judas hanging himself. Uh, in verse 19, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate. 
and let there be no one to dwell in it. That's from Psalm 69, 25. And let another take his office. That's from Psalm 109, verse 8. Uh, and you see this throughout the New Testament, uh, the Gospels in particular, where uh, Matthew and John and, and here in the book of Acts, we see Peter quoting, uh, quoting the scriptures, uh, using the scriptures to help demonstrate the fulfillment of the scriptures, pointing to those things that the scriptures had foretold. Uh, now, these passages that he quotes here are somewhat obscure, although the passage there about uh, let another uh, take his office, and that was uh, or, or um, uh, actually the first reference, I think, from Psalm uh, 69, uh, was a psalm about betrayal and such, and so it's, it's fitting. Um, but it is interesting sometimes to see where Matthew or here Peter uh, quotes scriptures that you would not have necessarily connected. I mean, they don't they don't necessarily not connect, obviously they do, but it's interesting, their knowledge of the scripture and their capacity to take these passages that likely were somewhat obscure to most of us who read, probably less so to the Jews who were, grew up with it, um, but as he pulls passages from the Old Testament and begins to demonstrate how they're connected to New Testament fulfillment, is a fascinating study in itself. Uh, for example, um, if, uh, if you watched our, um, uh, our series on eschatology called Is This the Beginning of the End? Uh, you can find that on our podcast, and you can find it on our YouTube channel as well with the church. Um, but um, uh, the basic answer to the question, are we, is this the beginning of the end? The answer is no. Actually, the beginning of the end, uh, the beginning of the last days, actually goes back in Acts chapter 2, when Peter shares his sermon about how this outpouring of the Holy Spirit uh, was in fact fulfillment of what was spoken of by the prophet Joel in chapter 2. And so, in Joel chapter 2. And so we see here, uh, in that case as well, Peter quoting from the Old Testament to demonstrate a fulfillment of those things in his time. And so uh, their knowledge of the scripture, you know, we think of Peter as a fisherman and some of these guys as fishermen and zealots, uh, fishermen and zealots, tax collector, those kind of things. But they knew the word. They grew up uh, understanding the scripture and they, they often referred to it in these kinds of instances. So it's uh, an, interesting, uh, an interesting thing to recognize there. Verse 21, as we kind of bring uh, this section uh, uh, to a close. So one of the men who uh, w- accompanied us, uh, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all that time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place uh, in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. And so Peter stands up and he quotes the scripture and says, We need to find someone, we need to choose someone to replace Judas, uh, to take his place among our number. And so they put a criteria forward. Uh, It has to be someone who was with us in the beginning, who witnessed the resurrection of Christ uh, and such. And so of, 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 of all who may have qualified for that, they lifted up two, a man named Joseph, Barsabbas, uh, but also Matthias. And so uh, they cast a lot, and the lot falls on Matthias. And Matthias becomes the new 12th apostle, replacing Judas. And this has raised some questions. Maybe not, uh, 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 not everybody has questioned this, but a lot of people have questioned 
this uh, scenario? Like, was this in fact something that was led by the Holy Spirit? Was this something that uh, maybe was uh, a little bit impulsively done, maybe a little rushed? Um, and so, uh, and even the question, the fact that they raised up two people and asked the Lord to choose between the two that they had chosen, uh, that in itself may be a little suspect as far as a methodology for, um, you know, finding out who the Lord had chosen. Um, this may be completely what the Lord had in mind, or it may very well kind of give us an example of something that uh, demonstrates that maybe the apostles were being a little impetuous at that point. I don't know. I'm not really going to be dogmatic about that, um, you know. Um, but I do want to raise a suggestion that is generally connected with this passage and this discussion. Um, later on, uh, some chapters down the road, in chapters uh, 7, but particularly 8 and 9, uh, we come in contact with a man named Saul, who would eventually become the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul uh, uh, refers to himself in Acts 15, verse 8, as an apostle born out of due time, when the Lord appears to those after, the, after his resurrection, he makes himself known. He had the disciples, Peter, his brothers, 500 at one time. And then Paul refers to himself as an apostle, as one born out of due time. And so this has caused many, uh, and I'll be honest, in the sake of, of transparency, I tend to lean this way a bit, uh, is that Paul actually was the one that, that uh, had been intended to be that 12th apostle. Now, there are others called apostles. I think Barnabas is called an apostle, and the term is used of others besides the 12 here, besides Paul. But the word apostle in itself simply means one sent. A disciple is a learner, an apprentice, a study. But uh, an apostle is one who is sent on a mission in that. And so certainly anybody who is sent with the gospel in one sense is, is you know, in, in the general sense of that definition could fit that term. Uh, apostle, but really, when we're talking about here, we're talking about Jesus' team. Okay, the apostles. These are the guys. Um, and so, um, was Matthias the one that the Holy Spirit had picked out, or was Paul? That's a question that we don't necessarily know the answer to. Uh, people who think this through have their views on it. I've already kind of alluded to the fact that I tend to think Paul might have been. Um, but the one way we'll find out for sure is uh, when we get to heaven in uh, Revelation 21, 14, uh, we see that there is the New Jerusalem and the gates, the pearly gates as they're known, uh, each have the name of the 12 tribes of Israel. And uh, the foundations that are there have a name of each of the apostles of the Lamb. Well, we'll count through the 11 and then we'll finally come to this 12th one and we'll be able to see whose name is on it, and then our questions will be answered. But in the meantime, we can sort of have some fun speculating of how that might, uh, what that might, uh, who that might be, and such. But, um, but I want to bring that up just because that is a discussion that um, that that comes up often when we get to this passage, and I didn't want to not bring it up. Uh, you don't have to agree with my perspective on it. I'm just saying that it is a discussion that comes up around this, and so it's worth kind of talking about. Um, one last thing I'll mention in this passage is that Peter stands up as sort of the leader of the Twelve and, and puts forth this idea. And it's, uh, it's, it should not be something, you know, we talked about sort of a Catholic discussion a moment ago in regard to like the brothers and sisters of the Lord in that. Well, another big discussion in Catholic circles, of course, is the question of Peter as being the leader of the church and, and uh, who they would see as being the first pope, uh, following which were a, an unbroken line of succession uh, of popes that, that even uh, uh, in our day uh, continues. 
And so um, the idea of Peter being the leader of the 12. Now, the fact that he would have been seen as the leader of the 12 in these early days should not trouble anybody, even if we bristle at the idea of, of popes and things like that. The idea of Peter being the leader of the group should not really surprise us or, 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 or be seen as a bad thing. To see him as a leader that is unquestionable and is sort of the mouthpiece or vicar of Christ or any of those kinds of things, that, that is something that should make us bristle. Uh, that's not the case. Uh, we see this... Um, you know, we see this in Peter's own ministry. Paul rebukes him later in Galatians, we see. And so, you know, the idea that anyone was above question, of course, was not something that the apostles, uh, they saw their role as responsible teachers and, and, and uh, foundations of the church that would be built. Um, but the idea of, of any of them being beyond question or anything like this, that was something um, that, that would have been a foreign idea to them. They recognized their apostolic authority and they used it in a servant mindset, you know, teaching and, and building the church and, and investing. But to see it as sort of an unquestioned uh, final word on things, to the extent that we generally sort of associate with the idea of popes, is something that would not, really doesn't find its root in scripture. And so uh, I don't mean to sound cavalier when I say that, but having spent some some time in that, again, I grew up with this. And so uh, like many, I spent a lot of time looking into these things, um, uh, you know, post-fact. And so, um, but anyway, that being said, on the other side of the coin, sometimes in a reaction to those things, and I've been guilty of this early on in my own Christian life, is that in, in sort of a reactionary way, uh, we tend to make the mistake of belittling some of these uh, folks that we see in Scripture. Um, for example, like Mary, you know, um, the idea of her being... Uh, immaculately conceived herself and the idea of her ascension into heaven because she was sinless as the tabernacle of God, being perpetually virgin, all these kinds of things, things that are completely and wildly unbiblical. Uh, Mary died just like anyone else did. She was buried just like anyone else did. She's not the co-redemptrix, all those things. In reaction to those ideas, uh, sometimes we go too far and begin to belittle people that were actually held up as models in Scripture. For example, Mary is a phenomenal example example in Scripture. She's chosen by God to give birth to Messiah. The incarnation takes place in her womb. And so she is blessed among women, right? I'd say above, but blessed among women. Of all women, she was uh, blessed with this beautiful privilege. Um, But was it because she was sinless? Of course not. We see her own offerings with Joseph after she gives birth, they go to Jerusalem and they bring their offerings that are required of them. And they uh, in no way are ever portrayed as being sinless. They simply were chosen to raise the child Jesus. Um, And so we want to make sure we don't make either of two mistakes. We don't want to, on the one hand, embrace unbiblical ideas because we want the scriptures to speak for themselves. We want to let God's word be un. Uh, unadulterated by the ideas and traditions of men. That's an important principle that we want to make sure the Word of God is the final word on things, not our traditions, and no man stands in judgment of what the Scriptures mean and and begin to therefore begin to impose uh, unbiblical doctrines on it. Jesus condemned that, as a matter of fact, when he talked about the Pharisees uh, holding on par with Scripture, their traditions of men, and he condemned them for that. And so we want to be careful not to make that error. But on the other hand, we also don't want to make the error of going so far in our critiques that we begin to actually uh, make those figures in Scripture that are elevated beyond scriptural uh, justification on the one end, we don't want to diminish them beyond scriptural uh, 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 the scriptural you know, descriptions either. We don't want to make Mary seem like she's not 
a wonderful example that she wasn't blessed for the blessed uh, opportunity she had. We don't want to pretend Peter wasn't a leader in the church. He was clearly a leader in the church. He tended to be the one who spoke up. Uh, he tended to be the one that that was um, leading the group, you know. And it may have been a personality thing, but certainly, uh, certainly Jesus, um, you know, he um, was part of Jesus' inner circle in that. There's reason to to understand and not be turned off at the idea that Peter would have had that kind of a place of prominence, just not to the extent that that he has sometimes been portrayed. Um, we did a study on Peter years ago, and on a personal note, I found it to be wonderfully rich in just looking at this person uh, uh, and just his relatable nature in that. I'll try to remember to put the link to that study in the notes here so you can watch it as well if you're so inclined. But um, but anyway, maybe that's a, a lot of stuff here in this short little passage, but it, it just it seemed worth discussing some of these things, and hopefully it's of some benefit as we continue to make our way through. Um, and so that being said, um, as always, if you have comments and questions, you can go ahead and uh, leave them in the notes below on our YouTube channel, or certainly on our, my personal website at parsonspad.com. You can go there and you can comment as well as watch the videos. You can email me from there as well. And you can also, from our church's website at calvarychapelfranklin.com, you can email me from there as well, as well as, of course, find out what's going on at our church. And we'd always invite you to come on out and, and, and join us. But um, for now, let me go ahead and pray us out. And we'll look forward to catching up again next time. And next time is going to become very exciting, too, because as we get into Acts chapter 2, we now have that coming of the Holy Spirit where he now uh, empowers for the service as Jesus told them that he would. And, And so many of these things that Jesus spoke about the Holy Spirit in the end of John's gospel in that upper room discourse Um, they begin to now experience firsthand as the Holy Spirit comes. And so that'll be very, very exciting. So, um, but let me pray. Father, we thank you for this time. And we just praise you for your goodness and grace toward us. We thank you for giving us your word that we can read and look to, uh, to help us understand your your nature and your ways. Help us, Lord, to, uh, to, on a just regular, everyday, daily basis, to spend time in it and just allow it to uh, impact, affect, and even change our thinking. Allow it to wash over us and help us to live lives that are uh, that are instructed and empowered and and reflect the beauty of your word. Uh, Father, we pray the Holy Spirit would have His way as He takes these words and drives them deep in, deep into our hearts, and again affects the change that He seeks to change, uh, that we might become more and more like Jesus. Father, it's exciting to read about those first followers and and how they. Uh, grew as they walked with you, and now as this responsibility of of bringing the gospel to the world was left upon their shoulders, and as they're empowered to do so, just to watch the acts of the Holy Spirit through them is an exciting thing. So I just pray our hearts are open, our minds are open to receive those things that your word would have for us as we continue through it. Thank you, Father. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.